We have been working our way through the book of Genesis, as you know, and we have come to chapter 8. Last week, we saw the preparation of the ark, and they got on the ark, as you remember, and all the earth was flooded, and all animal and humans They died except for those that were on the ark, and those who were water creatures also survived, no doubt. But it says here in chapter 8, verse 1 here tonight, then God remembered Noah. Now, this is what we have in this scripture. They're called anthropomorphic statements, which is God saying something in a way that we can understand. Okay, so when it says the eye of the Lord is upon us, that doesn't mean God's a cyclops. Okay, he has one eye. Um, when it says the wings of the Lord and, and these kind of things, that doesn't mean he has wings. These are all, those are zoomorphic statements when you take an animal and attribute it, like God is like the hen who gathers her chicks and that kind of thing, zoomorphic. But anthropomorphic means anthro-man. And so literally it just means that, that God focused in on Noah and all the living things that, and the animals and that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So um, there wasn't a whole lot going on for quite a long time while the water were on the earth and the ark was floating there and they were taking care of the animals and doing their job. Things went on. But as it got closer to exit the ark, it says that God, once again, is focusing back in. In other words, there's something to write about. Uh, the other days, there was nothing really to write about. But now there's something here that God's uh, getting ready to do again. And he made a wind to pass over. Some say this might be the first wind that uh, earth ever experienced. Because the earth before the flood was very, very different. We know the waters were above, so, you know, we, we have... Uh, very little um, layers between us and the sun now. And no doubt, that's probably the biggest reason um, man doesn't live to be a thousand years or close to a thousand years like they did before the flood. But um, the waters from above broke and then the waters that were under the, the planet, it tells us that the waters were under the ground and probably just like the high tide and low tide, when the high tide came, the, the pressure of the under the water would spew up through the ground and it would be like a sprinkler system. They had never seen clouds. They had never seen rain. There probably was no snow on the earth either. And it appears that all the land was in one place gathered together and there was a singular sea. And um, after the flood, it appears to be that way as well to a degree because in chapter 10, when we get into the genealogy there, it actually mentions when the lands begin to divide. And we know of the continental drifts. You can take the land around the planet right now and you can practically put it together like a puzzle. And so after the flood, this movement began to happen and then there was many oceans, many seas. But um, so at this point in time, God has this wind. You know, we often look at this and, and we think about it. But... There's thousands of years, almost 6,000 years of recorded human history who thought about this, who meditated on this very verse right here. 
And you know, one of them was actually King David. And he actually wrote a beautiful song about it. He actually, or a poem, we, we don't know. But in Psalm 104, has everybody got the verses to make it easier? You know where the verses are, right? You want to grab them for your, your friends there? Be a friend. Give them a verse. In Psalms 104, verse 6 through 9, he says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment, and the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. So we see a wind happening here, but David saw the Lord speaking. And this wind occurred and the thunder, and it was a powerful moment. And he says, they went down into the valleys, the waters, and the place which you found for them. So they finally settled in in an ocean or a lake or a river. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over. I mean, isn't that that amazing how people build these multi-million dollar homes just a few feet away from the ocean? Because they're confident that that water, even high tide, is going to come that far. And, 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 you know, on occasion, you have a tidal wave or something, but they're pretty confident they can sleep well at night knowing God keeps those boundaries of the water. So you set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Of course, Jeremiah 32, 17 says this, O sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So God could just speak and there's a wind and everything gets dry. How's that? It's like, look, he made the whole planet. He he actually created the water to begin with. He separated the waters at the beginning. Is it hard for him to separate the waters from the earth again? This is, this is, there's nothing hard for God. There's nothing that's like, that's easier than that. That's hard. That's difficult. No. Raising the dead or, you know, calling the, the quail to come and feed the millions of people in the wilderness. Nothing's hard for God. Well, he goes on now in verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. Okay, so the waters uh, covering the earth, the system from above, whatever water was left up there stays. Waters from beneath, that's shut off, so there are some waters underneath, uh, but not all of them. At At a point, he stopped it from flooding the whole planet. It was done. The top of the mountains were covered. There was no need to do any more. And the waters receded continually from the earth. So it started out as a gradual thing. At the end of 150 days, the water decreased. 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 Um, I know it was one of those D words there. 150 days is almost five months. 152 days would be five months. So let's call it five months. But in verse 4, Then the ark rested in the seventh month and the seventeenth day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. So I don't want you at this point to just sort of space out going, oh, it's Chinese now. 17, second month, 17th day. What are you talking about? And how do I use those numbers? It just sort of messes with my head because I don't even know what to use in those numbers and references. So I want to help you, okay? Notice in your notes there, if you go back to Genesis 7-4, he tells us at the very beginning 
that he commanded Noah and his family to get on the ark and God shut the door and they just sat for seven days. Nothing happened. I think that was obviously a challenge on their faith, right? <laughs> it's going to rain. Noah's been preaching. It's going to rain. What do you mean rain? What's that? Well, water's going to flow out of the sky. <laughs> That's impossible. Never had rained before. Now he gets on the ark and God shuts the door and he's like, hear anything, guys? No? Think it's wet outside? No, stick your hand out the window. No, nothing there. Seven days they had to wait. Now, in chapter 7, verse 11, it said in the 600 year of Noah's life. From what I gather from here and what we're going to read tonight, I think it might have been his birthday. His, and that seventh day was actually Noah's birthday. He was 600, not only generally, but exactly. But it tells us there in chapter 7, verse 11, the seventh month on the 17th day of the month, on the day that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of the heaven were opened. So they're on the board for seven days. Then after seven days, the rain starts. And when the rain start, according to chapter 7, verse 11, it's the second month of the 17th day. So now we read <laughs> this verse, chapter 4, and it says, Now on the seventh month and on the 17th day that God ceased all the waters of the earth. But does that mean that they get off the ark? No, that does not mean they get off the ark. In just a few verses, in verse 14, we're going to go and skip on down there. It tells us on the second month, so now it's been a full year, right? On the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried, and they were able to get off the ark. Now, there's some other days and months in here, okay? But we're not going to really focus on them, because this is all we need to know. That from when they got on board or when the rain started on the second month, 17th day, and you add up the extra seven, you end up with one year and 17 days before they were able to exit the ark. If my math is correct, and I, I think it is. So, you know, we often try to picture, and, and people say, you know, well, how many animals were on the ark? And we know from last week, it wasn't two of every kind, was it? It was two of every kind of what? The unclean animals. How many of the clean animals was it? Seven of each. But again, the average size animal is about the size of a sheep. And so when you do that and you look at the size of the ark, there was plenty of room, max, almost double the amount of room they would have needed. And you say, well, what about the dinosaurs? I don't think they got the biggest dinosaur they could find. I think they got the littlest dinosaur they could find. Or God brought the small dinosaurs. That's all they needed. Now, after the flood, I think a lot of those animals, the weather was so vastly different, they just couldn't survive. And I think a lot of animals, as today, there's a lot of plants and every day going extinct, right? Animals going extinct almost every day on planet Earth. So um, a lot of them couldn't make it. Now we say, oh, those are prehistoric animals. That means prehistory. Not true for us. Because we know those animals were around just a few days before Adam was created, right? 
And so you say, well, all the people before the flood were around all the dinosaurs? Absolutely. But as we're going to look at again tonight, every animal, including man, was vegetarian. Nobody was eating meat. Not even the animals were eating meat. So, yes, these big old giant dinosaurs that could have been carnivorous, they weren't. They didn't need to be. A big part of it was probably there was just so much abundance of trees and nuts and plants and fruit to eat that, that there was just sufficient for all the animals. So how do you get a dinosaur how do you, or a fossil? A fossil is very hard to make. I mean, Dave, if you're driving home and you hit a dog and it dies alongside of the road, you won't come back in a thousand years and find a, a fossil, okay? It just won't happen. It'll disintegrate back into dust. To, to become a fossil, it is an extreme situation with a tremendous amount of force and matter landing on it, um, almost instantly trapping it with enough oxygen to then seal it off. And with all of that pressure over time, you, you end up with a fossil. And you know what we find today? Fossils everywhere, from the highest mountain in any country. I just saw last week, some said, I'm, I was just walking out here in the hills of LA, and look what I found. It was a full-on fossil. I think it would probably be worth quite a bit of money. But you, you find that everywhere. It's really not that, you know, right now, with the climate getting warmer, you know, I, I don't necessarily think CO2 is causing the climate change. I think it's probably all the cement on the planet that's causing all the climate change. So we should all go living back in tree houses. Sounds fun for a day or two. But um, either way, Right now, they are just founding masses of prehistoric animals that were trapped. In Russia, there are groups of people, they can actually get permits to go in and get all of the giant mammoth tusk. And they literally, just it's everywhere. They barely have to dig, and there's tons of them. And of course, you know, uh, they're very expensive, illegal but they can get permits to make them legal to sell to uh, Japan and China because they're not current <laughs> um, animals that they're killing or maiming to get their tusks. They're, they're just laying there in the ground, and they're, they're, they're worth a lot of money. But there's so many of them. Uh, and all over, the Arctic Circle and the North, they're they are finding stuff at a rate they cannot keep up with it right now. And so it's, it's interesting that there really is no prehistoric for us. The, the history is there. The dinosaurs are there. And they brought them on the ark. And, and now we know that they were there on that ark with those animals for a bit over a year. So that, that would have been quite a boat ride, right? Because they couldn't even go outside. They had to stay inside. And uh, so... If, if you want, we can say that Noah is the first to go through a pandemic and got locked down. But uh, <laughs> a flood-demic, he was the first to get locked down in a flood-demic. So anyway, we are now back in, into uh, end of verse 4. And they landed on the mountain range of Ararat. So today, we, we actually have the mountains, the, mount, the mount of Ararat, 
but generally we look at the mountain range of Ararat. And you know, um, it's well known to this day. Um, it's interesting if you look at history, there's uh, Dr. Morris in his book, um, the Genesis record goes through every single sighting throughout the ages. I just want to give a few here. I have written down how many times the ark has been seen. And in 275 BC, that would be almost 300 years before Christ, Barassus, a Babylonian historian, wrote, maybe, maybe he knew Daniel, um, but he wrote this, but of this ship that grounded in Armenia, some part still remains in the mountains and some get pitch from the ship by scraping it off. And then, of course, a writer that was uh, very much in the time of Christ, in 75 AD, Josephus writes that the locals collected relics from the ark and showed them off to, uh, to this very day, he says. He also said all the ancient historians knew wrote about the ark. In 100 AD, Theophilus of Antioch wrote, the remains of the ark are to this day to be seen in the mountains. An elderly Armenian man who migrated to America said that as a boy, he visited the ark with his father and three atheistic scientists in 1856. Their goal was to discover the ark's existence, to, excuse me, to disprove the ark's existence, but they found it, became enraged. And they tried to destroy it, but they could not because it was too big and it was petrified. In 1918, one of the atheist scientists, an Englishman, admitted on his deathbed the whole story was true. In 1876, a distinguished British statesman and author, Viscount James Bryce, climbed Ararat, reported uh, finding the four-foot-long piece of hand-tooled timber at the altitude of more than 13,000 feet, about uh, 4,300 meters or 13,000 uh, feet elevation. Six Turkish soldiers claimed to see the Ark in 1916. In the early part of the century, Russian aviators uh, named uh, Vladimir claimed that he discovered Noah's Ark and he was stationed in southern Russia near Turkey, the Turkish border of Mount Ararat, and he tested a, a plane. He and his co-pilot flew over Ararat and discovered on the edge of the glacier he described as the boat size of a battleship. He said it was partially submerged in a lake. He could see there was an opening uh, for the door nearly 20 feet, 7 meters square, but the door was missing. He goes on and says that uh, his, he told his commanding officer they were going to give an expedition to dispatch to go find the ark and to photograph it. The report was forwarded to the czar who was soon overthrown. You guys remember that? And the photos and the report perished. There's many more like this. Now, I, I got to tell you a personal story. Uh, Henry Morris, who is a great scientist, passed away not too long ago. But um, he started Creation Research Institute. I, I knew him well. And, um, but his son went on expeditions. And one time he was going on an expedition, he came and spoke at Calvary Chapel San Diego, where pastor at the time. And uh, he, one of his expeditions was an amazing story. And he wrote a book. It's actually a kid's book, but adults will love it. And, uh, and it's just an amazing story. And he gives a lot of this history. Because as a small child, he read a book on a guy that went to find it. And he said, someday I'm going to go. But he fully believes 
that there would be enough melting going on before the rapture of the church that the whole world would get to see the ark. And he believed that because the days of Noah would be as so the coming of the Son of Man be. But also, he really uh, believed that it would just be a testimony of the truthfulness of God and his word. And it would be sort of the last revival before the rapture comes. And so he wanted to be a, a part of that. I don't know if he's doing expeditions now, but John Morris was his name. A great guy. And uh, interesting stories. But uh, we'll, we'll stop right there. And uh, we'll move in our teaching here. In verse 5. And the waters decrease continually until... Um, the waters decreased continually until the ninth month, then the seventh month, on the first day of the month, and the tops of the mountains were seen. And it came to pass at the end of the fortieth days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So he first sends out a raven, which is a carnivorous type of animal, and it's an unclean animal. And it, it would land on anything, and it would eat anything. So the raven never came back. But he also sent out from himself a dove, a clean animal, a very particular animal, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So were there plants and seeds and stuff that the, the doves could eat? And the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening. Behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Well, I'll just say, everything was nice and wet to start growing stuff, right? <laughs> no uh, irrigation needed. The whole earth was well irrigated, so I'm sure the whole earth just grew. Um, all the seeds and plants that were spread throughout very, very quickly. Things could have been very lush worldwide. And so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year. So it appears it's his birthday. Hey, Noah, happy birthday. And in his first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So they took off the roof of the ark, and now they're looking. And of course, with all those animals in the ark for a year, I'm sure a, a nice breeze was very, very helpful. And... In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth dried. And that's where we um, just looked at that, that the earth was dried, and uh, it's a year and 17 days. And then notice, then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark. Noah waited. It kept saying, if you go back and you look, and it says in, in verse 10, and he waited yet. In verse 12, he waited yet. It came to pass. He, he kept waiting and waiting. And Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone 
of a foundation, which is the Messiah. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. We know from the New Testament that's a prophecy of Jesus. Whoever believes will not act hastily. (laughs) Whoever has faith, as one translation says, will not be in a hurry. Because there's a sense where we're in God's sovereign timing. And if we just live in the spirit, we'll have that timing. When we start acting in the flesh, we're out of that timing. And I can tell you right now, that's the thing that I can't stand when I'm in the flesh. Because when I'm in the spirit, I just have a sense that I'm in God's perfect timing. Whatever happens, God's got it in control. Right down to every number of every hair upon your head, every piece of sand that turns. I just love that sense of living in in God's timing. And Noah had that sense. He's like, hey, I'm in God's timing. I heard God. I built the ark. I got in. He shut the door. When do I get out? I'm just waiting. Now, it didn't mean he couldn't have fun with it, send out a raven, send out a dove, testing things out. And I believe that was also the Lord's leading, no doubt. But finally, the Lord says, okay. I, I think the Lord was testing Noah. I think he was... Showing us, wait on the Lord, right? I say again, David says all through the Psalms, wait on the Lord. Have faith and don't act hastily. Let let it all work out in God's timing. What a wonderful way to live. So it tells us there that God says in verse 16, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so God said it, and so notice in verse 18, so Noah went out. He's an obedient guy. He walked with God. He had faith, and he was uh, an obedient guy to the word of God. Now, Matt Ararat itself is almost 17,000 feet elevation. So all these animals, especially those who probably wanted a more warmer climate, no doubt, everything is downhill. (laughs) So I could just imagine him opening that up and all of these animals coming out and just downhill they go, running and running. Um, And some some of them probably hanging out around the ark, little... uh, you know, a little slower in movement. And of course, some animals like sheep need, uh, need Noah's to take care of them. So I'm sure they would have uh, been exited a little differently. So he obeyed God and went out. And um, exactly as, as God had said, with his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Now, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So you're wondering, why is there an odd number of clean animals? Seven. Well, here you go. Now you know why. Because some of them were going to be given as an offering. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing 
as I have done. So God says he, he smells this sacrifice, this worship unto him. Yes, the animal was burning. And no doubt the barbecue smelled good. But that wasn't the point. The point was that Noah said, my first step into this new world. Because God said to Noah exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. Go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I'm sure that would have been a very heavy, reverent moment when you're hearing the very same words Adam and Eve heard. And now it's me and Mrs. Noah hearing it. And I got my sons here. And what a responsibility we have before God. And so the first step is to say, God, this new planet, we want our first to be sacrificed to you and worship. We want to step off this boat in spiritual worship. We want to live our lives in sacrifice unto you and living for you and walking in obedience to you. But God said, yes, I receive your worship, but you know what? Here's the thing, the heart, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The reality is, is Adam <laughs> brought all of his kids into the world, including us, with a sinful nature. And, and here God is saying, it's bad. It's really bad. You guys need a, a savior. Remember David in Psalm 51.5 said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And of course, Paul nails it as he quotes Psalm and Ecclesiastes and some other places. He puts together really a comprehensive statement on this subject in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. As it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No respect of God. That's the human nature that we've inherited from Adam. So when people say, well, I think I'll get to heaven by being a good person, <laughs> you and I know the truth. I mean, one, everybody would know it if they're honest with themselves, how sinful, debauched, how need we, needy we are of, of salvation. We need a savior to make us righteous because we are not righteous and nor can we be in this human flesh it is a losing battle. We need a savior. And, um, and so he, he nails that. And it's interesting, you know, we have chapter 9. Gets to see Noah and his boys for a little bit more. Chapter 10 is basically a breakup of all the peoples of the earth. We actually see it in chapter 10. How all of the different nationalities and, and, the, and the families of the earth begin to disperse. And as they disperse, there's a continental drift. The earth begins to move. So it's not a mystery to us. You know, you get here in high school, that's a mystery. Oh, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's not a mystery. Uh, interesting enough, when I was in high school, they did teach right from the Bible in a secular school to help us understand this. 
They did use this. They showed us right out of the Bible. The, they called it the cradle of civilization. And they showed Iraq and between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And, they, and it was, you know, now, now it's demonic uh, compared to what it was, you know, a few, year, a few decades back. And, um, and so, uh, again, here, chapter 11, what do we have? <laughs> the Tower of Babel. Everybody was supposed to be dispersing and going to the world and multiplying. As it talked about, they eventually did out of chapter 10. But they get together to rebel against God. Do you remember that? There was a guy, Nimrod, and he was this mighty guy, and he got everybody to, to build a tower where, where the Garden of Eden would have been, right there between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, right there where Babylon would later be, right there. They come back to the Garden of Eden. You know, no doubt the whole thing is instrumented by Satan to build a tower to crash right into the living room of God and flip him off. And God scatters the world in their language. Very much so, the description is there, the imaginations. <laughs> Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Us going to heaven is the miracle of miracles of miracles of miracles of miracles. That your sinful flesh says, I'm a sinner. And I need, I'm in need, I submit to you, Jesus, to be my Messiah and to forgive me through your death on the cross and your resurrection. That's a miracle, guys, that you would do that and then to continue to say, even though I'm stumbling and falling in many ways, yet I keep coming back to that throne of grace to say, God, forgive me, give me grace, and I'm going to continue, even though the thought of my heart is evil continually, uh, from the first thing I wake up in the morning until I go to bed at night, maybe not as bad as it used to be, but it's still not righteous as you are righteous, Lord. And that's a beautiful sacrifice. So what are, how can we today sacrifice? Um, real quickly, one we can sacrifice with our lives. Romans 12, 1, right? 1 and 2. I beseech you the mercies of God that present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Good works. In Hebrews 13, 16, it says, do not forget to do good or to do good works and to share with which such sacrifices God is well pleased. And of course, Titus 2.14 tells us that God purified for himself his own special people for the main thing is to be zealous for good works. And then of course, the praise, the praise of our lips. In Hebrews 13.15, therefore, uh, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And then in our finances, in Philippians 4, Paul says to these very poor people, uh, thank you for your gift. <laughs> and and I, I know it was sacrificial for you. There's a whole bunch of verses on this. But he said, concerning the giving and receiving, he says, I, I, I'm thankful, but not for the gift, but I'm thankful because I know the fruit that is going to bound to your account in heaven. And he said, and I have all, I abound, I am full. I've received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So these little widows with their mites came to support Paul when none of the other churches did. And God says that, that giving heart of what you have and even what you don't have, what a beautiful sacrifice it is. 
Well, let's take a couple of minutes for questions, and we're going to hopefully have time to just seek the Lord for a little bit. Any questions from last week? We didn't have question and answer time or, or this week. None? Oh, here we go. Yes, what's your question? That's how man's heart, that's how hard man's heart is. Yeah, they're watching this miracle. I mean, it's a miracle that Noah and his boys could build this giant boat. <laughs> and they had the knowledge to do it. Um, and, and no doubt all the animals getting on was a miracle. But remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees got together and they said, okay, the plan we had just to kill Jesus won't work. We also have to kill Lazarus because everybody's believing him through his resurrection from the dead. So... <laughs> You're like going, uh, or you could just believe on Jesus. That's another plan. Uh, and let Lazarus' miracle be something that touches your heart. But that's, yeah, our hearts are desperately, deceitfully wicked above all things you could not. You had a question last week. You said, I'll ask you next week. It can be any question about anything. Now, Jesus says in the Gospels that whoever is left, it's going to be a horrible time. He says that. He says that whoever's not counted worthy to escape all these things, it's going to be a horrible, horrible place. So, yeah, and we can speculate are the clothes left behind or the clothes, because Jesus' clothes were left behind in the tomb. Um, you know, they came in and they saw the linen, but he was gone. So, do our clothes stay here? And it doesn't matter, you know. You know, our, our pilot's going to get saved, and um, they don't have a pilot, and all of a sudden the plane is flying without. I think it's very possible. I'm one, one thing I'm very confident of, there'll be plenty of politicians in Washington, D.C. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but good question. Well, come on up, guys. I did, uh, as we were earlier in... Um, Genesis, there was a part of this hymn that came from that part. And then the other part of this Genesis 8 is that verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and the day and night shall not cease. 